The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And just appreciating the momentum, the cumulative intentions to come, to return to the present moment, to connect, to allow, that builds up some momentum in the mind. Now, I'm not saying it's not messy. (laughs) I'm just saying that there is something called cause and effect. And what we've been doing these last number of days is not what we normally do. We're cultivating these particular intentions, strengthening, deepening, widening these particular intentions to be present, to stabilize present moment awareness, and to recognize the capacity of wisdom and love to be the way the mind is relating, be the way the mind is connecting. And, and in a way, we've probably been developing some confidence, really beginning more and more to see this way of being, this way of relating as a kind of refuge that is worthy of our confidence or faith. And this isn't faith in something out there, outside of ourselves. It's really faith, confidence, that there is a way for me or this heart to be showing up in the world, and I can really trust that. And the other thing about it that I think fair to say about what we're learning is that way of relating that is wise and kind, it isn't like some solid edifice, you know, sometimes, and even in the similes we find in the Buddhist teachings, sometimes there's similes like a rock edifice that remains unmoved, no matter the buffeting winds. But but another way that they describe it that I I tried to point to at the very end of the guided meditation is more a sense of the vastness. And some of you know this simile that's in the suttas, um, it's usually referred to as the simile of the salt crystal. And uh, I use it in the context of Lake Superior. You know, if we have a small jar of water, like a quart of water, and we put a couple cups of salt in that quart of water, that quart of water is going to be really salty. It's going to be deeply affected by the salt or whatever you might put in it. But if you take those two cups of salt and you put it in Lake Superior, it's really going to have a an almost uh, non-existent um, effect because of the vastness of the lake. Even though two cups seems like a lot of salt, in relationship to the vastness of Lake Superior, it's not going to make a big difference. You're not going to taste the salt in that water, right? And this is the another simile the Buddha used to understand what this wise way of relating, this kind and loving 
way of relating, it provides that kind of vastness. It doesn't mean that what gets triggered, the push and pull of our lives and what it triggers in our heart, you know, the different insults, the different challenges and 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 also, you know, what also can be quite triggering is even really beautiful experience can be triggering, triggering, you know, like having success can really throw us for a loop. Having somebody love us, for some of us, that might be more challenging than dealing with some challenge, you know, some difficulty. And, uh, you know, the Buddha uses a sense that, but when that happens, when the mind, when the heart is fast, it's no problem. Whatever the, you know, whatever gets thrown our way, whatever comes our way, if we're relating with a kind of vastness, then we're really protected by that great space that can hold it all, feel it all, not afraid of being touched or moved. So I really like that image because I I think we can use it uh, in a felt way. Like just, you know, because you know how it is when we're really uh, in a defensive stance and, you know, a lot of our self-centeredness and self-centered fear and anxiety has gotten triggered. We feel really small and everything that then happens to us feels unworkable too much, you know, because we're so, we're both really sensitive, but we're already feeling, um, we're feeling small, so then in relationship, everything seems big. The way someone looks at us seems really big. The fact that the bus driver didn't smile at us feels really big, you know, that, you know, our lunch wasn't satisfying feels like a great betrayal. When and I shared a cookie at dinner tonight, and uh, it was like, had this amazing marketing campaign. When got it at work for, the, they had a lunch for um, some of the professors meeting their advisees, the new freshman students, and when brought it home and shared it with me. And it was packaged, and it had this sort of highfalutin, like the world's best chocolate chip cookie or something like that you know, and all the reasons why it was the best. And we started to eat it, and it was kind of salty. You know, it's like, too salty. And, um, yeah, it just, uh, it, it feels like even something like that can feel personal. Like, how dare they make such a big deal about this cookie only to have it be disappointing? You know, this that cookie was going to, make a difference. And instead, I, I was left feeling like, well, that wasn't fair. <laughs> that was that was supposed to make me happy. And uh, it just makes me mistrust the world. You can't even make a good chocolate chip cookie. So there's this... Uh, yeah, this sensitivity is good. But we need a vastness, so all the beauty that comes our way and all the horror that comes our way, we don't have to um, 
try to stop ourselves from feeling like we feel big enough, wide enough, deep enough to let it all in. And we're not confused. So that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. I mentioned a little of this last night near the end about Kintsuji and just this uh, reframing of brokenness. The heart that feels it all, sees it all, the 10,000 joys and sorrows is a phrase from Buddhism, uh, from some of the later traditions. I love that. Just like the enormity of all the joys and sorrows. And uh, we're interested in the heart that isn't afraid of the 10,000 joys and sorrows. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, some of us might be, feel more competence with the sorrows, but are completely incompetent with the joys. And others, you know, might be pretty relaxed with the joys, but don't know what to do with the sorrows. I want to share a little bit from one of my favorite articles by Ajahn Sumedho. They, uh, bunch of folks who knew um, Ram Das uh, wrote a book and uh, proceeds went to support Ram Das after a stroke. Maybe a few of you don't know Ram Das, but he was quite influential in these Eastern teachings coming to the West in the late 60s and 70s. And he practiced in the insight meditation tradition, but he also had a really important teacher named Karoli Baba, a sort of yogic, mystical, mystic teacher from India that was really important to him. And uh, in this collection of essays, Ajahn Sumedho, this Western Buddhist monk, has a wonderful essay called Nothing is Left Out. And it's, I think, just a wonderful essay on the blending of wisdom and love. Nothing is left out. And it's really, uh, it is that understanding of how wisdom and love work together that really um, allows us to live our life without holding back. And that's a nice, I like that phrase, not holding back. Because then it, it illuminates for us all the little and bigger ways we hold back. I see that a lot in my sets and just in general in my practice. You know, I could be really interested in the present moment, but I better hold back a little bit, pace myself. And, you know, that might be an appropriate attitude for some people who, you know, try too hard. But it, it also needs to be looked at, you know, this, uh, what's dangerous about being all in? Doesn't mean we have to be tight just because we're not holding back. It's really, a, I think it arises from an understanding about the present moment. Like if we hold back in this moment, then our mind is going to be conditioned to hold back in every moment following. That's what we watered. That's what we reinforced, the holding back. And he, in this particular part of the essay, he's talking about wisdom, the integration of wisdom and love. Like that's the way to understand it. Instead of like a Buddhist practitioner thinking, well, which quality should I develop first? 
you know, how do I do this awakening thing? I'll do this, and then once I master that, I'll do this. But it's, you know, as you probably imagine, it's not really like that. It's messier than that. It's more integrated than that. We can start here, and starting here opens up us up to all the other qualities we're developing. So it isn't so linear that in a way that we might imagine. And then he writes, this whole process is one of purification. In practice, we can begin to release the negative emotions and impurities we hold within us. As they start to rise up into our consciousness, if we are simply mindful of these unpleasant states and we can see them with kindness and acceptance, they begin to move away. But as long as we take the view that something is wrong with us, as long as we identify with them, we will push them down again saying, oh, I mustn't think like that. Then the purification process cannot take place because of our aversion and refusal to accept them. Right? And maybe instead of accept them, you could say this refusal to feel them, to let them in, to let them touch, or even just to help illuminate how all the subtle ways we can defend, our, defend ourselves, to let those so-called, you know, unwholesome qualities like aversion, to let them in, let to let them touch us, to let them affect us. So even not being afraid of being touched and even being affected. I'm not afraid to be affected. And he writes, the negativity stay with us and begin to accumulate right, when we don't let them in like that. So we can actually be glad, he writes, when unpleasant states keep coming up in our meditation practice. Right? It's like that opportunity to ventilate, to demonstrate the heart demonstrating to itself, I don't have to be afraid here because I can feel what I'm feeling. And he writes, by having metta for the wretched creatures we lock away inside us, we're opening the door of the prison. We're letting them go and we release them out of compassion rather than desire that the desire to be rid of them. If we contemplate the difficulties in this way, they can be borne more easily because we are looking at them with wisdom rather than seeing them as me and my problems. As long as they are mine, I can only hate myself for thinking or feeling a particular way. The spurious logic is only a bad person would think such bad thoughts. So therefore, I'm a bad person. And we feel tremendous guilt and self-aversion. Once we change our relationship to these negativities by moving from ignorance to wisdom, then whatever horrible thought or feeling may enter our mind is simply what it is. We are not denying it. Instead, with metta, with loving kindness, we allow it to be. We're willing to be with it and its nature and its nature is impermanent. It does not stay. And that willingness to let things be what they are, we liberate ourselves from them. As we become increasingly skillful at releasing these habits, there is a sense of lightness because the heart isn't burdened by guilt, self-dislike, blame, and all the rest. 
Clinging to negative states, identifying with them only creates endless neurotic problems about what we're feeling or thinking. So whenever we're willing to just be with the experience that's arising for us, then in that moment, we're not the one who's afraid. We're not the one who has to deny or control or get rid of. So it may seem like, you know, when we have a lot of pain that's arising or a lot of confusion, a lot of doubt, a lot of restlessness, a lot of dullness, a lot of lust or craving, a lot of irritation, it can really feel like the story we can tell is, I've got a lot of work to do. I'm really messed up. You know, I probably, probably we're talking many, many, many lifetimes of work. You know, we have these, and then we believe these kind of stories. But in one moment of the heart relaxing, wisdom and love doing its best to recognize, well, it's like this now. This is being felt. In that moment, this mind, that mind, isn't a mind that's afraid, isn't a mind that's controlling, isn't a mind that is burdened by that particular experience that's shown up. It's not a problem in that moment. It's still unpleasant, maybe. But in that moment, we realize the mind that's not at war, that's not in conflict with what's arising. How far away are we from that in any moment? It's not that far away. We might get sucked back in in the next moment to reactivity, judgment, or whatever it might be. But we want to notice, because it really builds confidence, we want to notice those moments of freedom where we're with that ordinary bodily pain in the middle of a sit, or that emotional quality of boredom in the middle of a sit. You know, whatever it might be, restlessness. And then uh, we remember this possibility of just opening, acknowledging. We sense the capacity of the mind, the heart to be vast, so deep and wide that it's okay feeling the restlessness or the doubt or the, you know, sensing whatever it is here to be sensed. Yeah, you belong too. It's already this way anyway. You know, the experience that's showing up for us, it's already the experience that's there. You know, we don't, all we do by turning away or getting tight is we add another layer to what's already here and now. So acceptance and that simple recognition. Yeah. Can this be okay? Yeah. Yeah, it's already here. The heart, the sensitive heart is already exposed to what's moving here. Maybe it's okay. He writes a little later in the article about working with anxiety. He says, I didn't want to feel anxious, so I was always resisting it. To distract myself from it, I'd read a book or do some task, or I'd try analyzing it. I'm anxious because... Dot, dot, dot and end up concluding that something was wrong with me. This turned the anxiety into a problem, which then had to be dealt with and solved. But when I reminded myself to have metta for this feeling of anxiety, 
not to think about it or analyze it, but to go to the place in the body itself, to the mental quality, and really embrace it, really be willing to feel that particular emotion. It became bearable. By changing my attitude to acceptance rather than rejection, to interest rather than just wanting to get rid of it, I found it was something I was able to tolerate. Then it ceased all on its own, for all conditions are impermanent. Now this is another thing we miss. So it's good, you know, whatever we are now, six days in or something like that, just think about those difficult states, difficult bodily states, difficult mental states, emotional states that just in the last six days or so have shown up and aren't here now and really get that they're not here now. They were there in a sense when we took them personally, they tormented us. We were tormented. We were the tormented one. I'm sure this is true for all of us, myself included. There were moments when we, each of us, many, maybe many moments, were the tormented one. We really felt put upon by our bodily states, our mind states, our emotional states, and even the external things, you know, somebody sneezing in the room or the heat and humidity or whatever it might be. And even though we didn't practice perfectly with them, Strangely, they still passed away, those torments. They ceased. They are not here now. Now, there may be some here, but those back there, they're not here anymore. They really did cease. And to really let that in, I think that's what, you know, that's one of the real fruits of having been a study practitioner for over 40 years, is it's pretty clear to me now when my mind is in a contracted state, that this will change. It's like even things that seem unusually scary or unworkable or, you know, like where there's some semblance of being a cornered animal trapped by some oppressive situation. There's just part of, it's so built in, the wisdom is just there. Really? Really, it's not going to change? <laughs> you know, and there's just, there can be over time so much confidence that instead of somehow I have to resolve this, I have to fix this, that somehow this will just change. It doesn't mean that I'm giving up on my, you know, participation or taking responsibility for my piece of whatever's going on. But just this profound confidence that things come and they go. And I'm so grateful for that. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, it makes all things possible. Impermanence makes all things possible. We don't live in some kind of frozen loop, you know, where we're destined to do the same thing, get the same result. It's much more wild and alive than that. But part of what we have to learn is this humility. I really love this little teaching from Pema Chodron, this uh, Western Buddhist nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Most of you know her. She's quite well-known and just a wonderful teacher, great books. 
and I'm forgetting where I read this, but in one of her books, she wrote, compassion is not a relationship between healer and wounded. It is a relationship of equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. And this, I think, is that aspect of wisdom and compassion that I like to talk about as brokenness or some kind of embracing, deep embracing, deep understanding of imperfection. And it's related to the liberating insight of dukkha that Shelley talked about a few days ago. When we really understand the deeper nature of dukkha, and it's called sankara dukkha, there's dukkha dukkha, which is just the ordinary mental and physical pain, right? And then there's a viparanama dukkha, which is the dukkha, like even when my conditions are really nice, but I know they won't last, that's it's, that's another kind of dukkha. So even when I'm feeling really comfortable, but I know I can't rely on the comfort that I'm feeling, because eventually it won't be comfortable. It kind of ruins the comfort, doesn't it? That's that second kind of dukkha. But there's an even more subtle dukkha, sankara dukkha, which is, it's kind of built into the fabric of body and mind and wrong view. And it's like, uh, it really is pointing to the basic setup of expecting sense experience, or just to be a little bit more provocative, expecting existence to provide satisfaction comfort, and well-being. Existence, sense experience, that's not what it's here to do. Its job isn't to provide well-being, comfort, happiness. And that's why I've been really stressing that what can actually provide freedom, the freedom the heart really aspires to, is relating with wisdom and kindness. That really can provide it, and it's unconditioned in the sense, can you imagine any moment of your existence, any sense experience where you couldn't relate to it or open to it with wisdom and love? So it's really not about the conditions, it's about the way of relating. There's a great little line from Sharon Salzberg where she says uh, something like, you know, suffering is not redemptive. The experience of suffering is not redemptive. But opening to suffering is redemptive, is liberating. So just submitting to the idea that I'm a suffering human being, that I'm vulnerable to whatever comes my way, and even the pleasures that might come my way, I can't hold on to them. That's not wisdom. That sounds kind of depressing. You know, just resigning ourselves to being a suffering being. That's not, when the Buddha's talking about opening or acceptance, that's not what he's talking about, this resignation. <laughs> it's like we have a self-help book that we call, call it Life Sucks how to accept things just as they are. (laughs) 
but it's it's really um it's this understanding that there's something liberating about not fighting with conditions, not setting up existence and the conditions of my existence as my savior, right? Because that's that endless, like, feeling of betrayal because my experience didn't deliver the happiness I wanted. And then we wallow in that sense of betrayal. And then at some point we rally our spirit and we get excited about, oh, well, maybe if I just try a little bit harder or do this or do that, then my conditions, then my existence will really deliver the happiness I think it should deliver for me. And then we get a little bit, you know, because there is some gratification when we start getting what we want. But then it betrays us again because of the incessant uncertainty and change and unreliability of everything. We never get to that sweet spot in any kind of meaningful or lasting way. So the Buddha's inviting us to give up on this trying to squeeze permanence or squeeze satisfaction or happiness out of something that can't deliver it. To really get interested in how the heart is relating. And that's always in play. And that's a question we can drop in. And it's, and you know, anything can be turned into a finger wag. So you have to find your own way to do it so it isn't some parental finger wag controlling tendency, but to ask in a really sincere, loving way, how's the mind, how's the heart relating right now? How's it relating? And part of that question is, is, is the heart relating in a way that's helpful? And just in a very basic, pragmatic sense, is this way of showing up, is this way of relating, this way of being close, is it helpful or not? I'll just end with a little quote from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. So I really like this. Just as one of the similes in it is really nice. It reminds me, just kind of in a funny way, a couple years ago, I've always been interested in Asana, and you know we have a really beautiful sauna that Corey built, Corey Clements had built out at our retreat center that we use for mindfulness practice. Each person has their own 45-minute shift to kind of be in the sauna and then put cold water over themselves and sit outside and sit in the sauna. And you can even sit outside, but in privacy, you know, the way we built it. So it's really nice place just to be present, especially doing it in the cold time of year or that night. And uh, and then a couple of years ago, everybody started getting into infrared saunas. And it was like, you know, it's like you're never done. You know, it's always can be more special because infrared, you know, has more of this penetrating heat. So this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, you'll see, it kind of reminds me because he's using that image of how sunlight penetrates uh, and opens up a flower as how wisdom and love work together. At least that's my interpretation. 
and this is in an article, or maybe a book called Art of Power. He writes, one of the core practices of mindfulness is to take care of our painful emotions. We can use the energy of mindfulness to recognize the pain inside and hold it tenderly, like a mother holding her baby. The energy of mindfulness does the work of recognizing, embracing, and bringing relief. You may not know what is causing your pain, your despair, your fear, but if you know how to hold that pain with the energy of mindfulness, you immediately get relief because the energy of mindfulness begins to penetrate the energy of pain, of sorrow. Imagine a flower in the morning. The flower is not yet open. The sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. The sun doesn't just go around the flower. The, the light naturally penetrates the flower and an hour later the flower has to open itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness embracing the flower of our feelings. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words, shine some sunlight on our experience of our heart and body and mind. Deeply patient, kind, and wise. So this vast way of being present. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.